0: Good morning. I'm Charlie Belt. This is a part of my story. As you may or may not know, it's my great honor and privilege to serve as principal at a local high school, Blue Springs South. On May 17th, just uh, six weeks back, I had the opportunity to do something that no high school principal ever wants to do. Sit in front of the local media, all of the local television stations, cameras, reporters, three local newspapers, and respond to some terrible things that had happened. Within a few days in May, racial slurs were written across the windows of a local barbershop in Blue Springs, and then a few days later, on a student's lab papers at Blue Springs South. These seemingly unrelated incidents of terrible harassment, discrimination, vandalism, and racism resulted in hurt, anger, sadness, disappointment, frustration, and much of that emotional energy from students, some parents, and some, some even staff, was directed at the school, the administration, and me, specifically. Thus, the press conference. These incidents had brought out memories of years of racist incidents for some of my students, parents, some that had occurred at schools, some that were in neighborhoods that we all live in. And though it wasn't directly stated... I really believe that our nation's recent struggles with tragedies like Ferguson influenced the thoughts and feelings of everyone involved. And even the divisive political culture that we lived through last fall in the election cycle had its role to play in this moment. So in the days and weeks since, this summer, after these acts of racism in Blue Springs, and at my school specifically, I've been pondering and struggling with questions like these. Maybe you've done the same in different moments in your life. Why do I feel so powerless to help? Why do I feel like the villain, middle-aged white guy? Why am I asked to defend the honor and integrity of our really good high school, South? And how can I help bridge the lack of understanding between all the sides involved? How in the world can it be 2017 and these things, these terrible acts of racism still go on? How could that be? How could just a week later LeBron James have his front gate in Los Angeles spray painted with the N word as well? How could that happen? One of our most famous and powerful athletes of our generation. How can I display and exemplify compassion, understanding, action instead of defensiveness and divisiveness, protection? In my position, how can I truly expect to fix? this problem of racial tension and lack of acceptance, if it's been ingrained in our nation's history since its very beginnings, and for that matter, part of the human existence since the beginning of time. And yet, despite all those questions that are impossible to answer, despite all of the emotional energy, despite of the, the, the struggle and the questions and the daily grind, even over the last six weeks during the summer of this issue, yet, from the moment that an assistant principal let me know that we had a racial slur written across a young student's paper. And throughout the difficulty of the hours of investigation and questioning, all of the meetings, the hard emotions, the anger, even the press conference moment, yet, during all of that, there has been no doubt in my mind, in my soul, and in my heart, from the very beginning, if God's call to me and to us is to make a difference, to take a stand, to do something. to counter these senseless acts of division, divisiveness, racism, discrimination, harassment, ugly, evil. And I fully believe that this response in me, this call, this feeling in my heart, mind, and soul has been encouraged, inspired, led by you in this church, Lakeland, living it out. Witnessing to God's love and his gospel message as it flows through redemptive communities. Prodeo, Anapra, Haiti. China, Liberia, the Hope Center, 20 minutes from here. There's been no doubt in my mind, I have an opportunity, we each have an opportunity to, to make a difference for good, for love, for the gospel. And I hope and pray that I continue to take full advantage, that I do not shrink back, but I take a stand for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in my current circumstances. From the school's perspective... We've applied the most serious disciplinary consequences in this issue. And we have an opportunity to bring healing and hope. This fall, we'll partner with the United States Department of Justice in a program that will empower 75 to 100 student leaders at our school to help the community forward to tackle these issues of racism and discrimination and hatred and lack of understanding. And in my hope and in my heart and soul, we will spread love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Charlie Belt, that's part of my story. Thanks.
1: Well, thanks, Charlie. Um, if you can't tell, it's hard for Dr. Belt to, to um, have to do that. Uh, I suggested that he do it because I thought it would be good for him, um, which hopefully it is, and of course... Good for us. We are talking about love this morning, and this morning of the entire Summer of Love theme and the fun that we're having with it, this morning is probably our most serious morning uh, because love is not just a happy, you know, then I saw her face feeling. It's actually all about that cross over there, and that's why it gets serious. So we turn to Scripture. If you brought your Bible or if you have it on your phone or whatever, we're in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Acts of the Apostles, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47, Acts 2, 37 through 47, I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. So we turn to Scripture. Now, when they heard this, that's a crowd, by the way, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him." And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, "Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3000 persons were added They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need, day by day. As they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2. This is how the very, very first followers of Jesus, the very first church, behaved after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. This is what it looked like for the church to be the church. This picture, this snippet right here is the gold standard for the church. This is what it's supposed to be right from the very beginning. And then here's the Apostle Paul writing a few years later after the Acts of the Apostles. Here's Paul's comment on the whole thing, teaching about what the church should look like. And he had been living in it out of Galatians chapter 3. Sorry to go through the scriptures fast if you're trying to follow along. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ have been clothed with yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Clearly, Christians were behaving different, radically different after the resurrection, different from the culture surrounding them. There was an entirely new social structure suddenly bursting forth upon the Christian uh, group called the church. Slave and slave owner, rich and poor, men and women, Jew and Gentile, different ethnic groups were now equal and one in the church. Can you imagine slave and slave owner now breaking bread together? Can you imagine 2,000 years ago the cultural differences in the Middle East? Haves and have-nots and what was going on there? This was radical. This was all about love. This was what we were saying where the kingdom of God was near and in their midst, just as Jesus had said. Clearly, Christians were doing things different. Paul understood that the new family of Jesus' followers would not look like the old segregated society around them, even within Judaism. Because of Jesus' victory on the cross and the resurrection, a victory over the present powers driven by fear and greed and chaos and competition and hatred and violence, the church could be like heaven on earth. The kingdom of God was near and in your midst. Just as Jesus had taught his followers to pray, and as we will pray before we even come to the table today, this very morning, as all Christians have been taught to pray throughout the generations. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven. Whatever's in heaven, on earth. Paul puts it this way when speaking about the Jews and the Greeks and the righteous and the pagans out of Ephesians chapter two. I'm bombarding you with scriptures just to show you that this is a very prevalent theme within the New Testament. For as he, talking about Jesus, for as he is our peace in his flesh, he has made both groups into one. He's broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. Thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. If you don't catch the drift, if you think this was simply talking about those saved people, it's certainly true about them. Those saved people included everyone. All sorts of diversity, you might call it. This was the original political correctness except it had nothing to do with politics. It had everything to do with the church of Jesus Christ. It's us who've come up with our snappy terms to label things. Back then, they just called it love. You see, everyone, the church ought to be the shining example of heaven here on earth. The church ought to be this gathered people that reflects the family of God. When the church fails to look like heaven... We failed to be the single most powerful force on the planet for changing the world, for ending racial violence, poverty, genocide, and most wars. I was taught when I was at KU by a TA, a teaching assistant, in a sociology class, Sociology 504, how can I forget it, that religion was the cause of all war, quoting Karl Marx. And something in my Bible upbringing said to me, no, 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 religion is not the cause of all war. Have and have-nots, economic differences, disparities, poor people and rich people is the cause of all war. I still believe that's true. The cause of violence and injustice is about haves and have-nots. Of course, if you want to go to war because somebody else has more than you and you want to go get what they have... You certainly want to make sure that God is somehow your motivation for it. So you want to bring out the biggest stick you can find, which is going to be God. And then you want to go whack your enemy with it. So, of course, people are going to appeal that faith, religion, God, or whatever is the cause of all war. But even in our ISIS and Syria situation today, it is between the haves and the have-nots. And I'm sure after church we could have a huge discussion about the core roots of all of the issues in the Middle East. You see what's at stake here, everyone. This is the soul of the church. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is where salvation gets its legs and gets up to walking speed. This is what it looks like. But unfortunately, our own culture tells us hopelessly that racism is here to to stay, that it's just a given, that it's just a part of things. And what can we do about it? And then we all shrug our shoulders and go back to our life, especially if you're a person of privilege, because it's not really costing you anything. So here we are, left this very morning, really with two churches in America, as Dr. King said so many years ago. And it isn't just preaching style and music style, although that's certainly a part of it, because there are cultural differences. The reason why the church is separated is really back to the haves and the have-nots. No white person in America wants to trade places with an African-American person. That's very clear. Many years ago, a study was done. It was a very simple study, and here it was. A survey asked young black men and young white men, and the question was asked, how much money would it take for you to change races? The black men said, nothing. I'll do. I'll become white for free. You don't need to pay me anything. The white men said at least $1 million for me to become black. I wonder what the price is these days. A few years ago, I visited the state of Mississippi. I went to Jackson, Mississippi. I was there in church business, and I was staying with a wealthy young white business owner, nice home, nice cars, They're very polite, very Southern. I'm not really used to Southern culture. I was actually flying in from Pasadena where we were living at the time, so it was quite a shock. We are driving by some shanties uh, on the way through Jackson, and by shanties, I mean they were wooden one-room shacks where you could see underneath it. They were like on stilts with a couple of cinder blocks uh, to step up into the house with a tar paper roof and some clappered uh, siding. Outside in front were some little African-American children playing in the dirt without much. And I was trying to figure out what was going on, and so I asked my host, who was driving, not wishing to offend them since they were hosting us, and I said, so uh," I asked what I thought was the polite question, so how's the race issue down here in Jackson, Mississippi? And he answered me very succinctly and very uh, bluntly. And he simply said this. It's not a problem. Not as long as they stay where, where they are and we stay where we are. And at that moment, it broke my heart. Because I knew that's what had been going on for hundreds of years. And moreover, it broke my heart because deep down inside, I realized that I'd been living out that same idea. As long as I don't feel any problem, what's the problem? See, one of the first movements of salvation, of coming to Jesus, is realizing whether you're black, white, Hispanic, or otherwise, is that you are racist. Only the most unthinking person thinks, I'm not racist. Everyone has a bit of racism in them. Am I speaking the truth here? Now, if you were standing out there in that dirt and you were one of those small African-American children in Jackson, Mississippi, and you saw the nice white people driving by in their nice big SUV, what emotion would you feel? Jealousy? Do you want an SUV? Maybe. Greed? Possibly. But more likely, the most dominant feeling that you would have if you began to think about it would be anger. African Americans are angry because of the hypocrisy. Because on one hand, white people proudly recite the creeds of the country. That all people are created equal and are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But they are not living out the desirable life. And they're not free. And they're not pursuing happiness. And that makes people bitter and angry and hopeless. Inner city, and I know I'm talking about a specific type of African-American, so please forgive me for, not, for lumping everything together. I, don't, I can only talk about one thing at a time here. Inner city, African-Americans are angry because they cannot get ahead. Anglos believe the answer to the race issue lies in individual effort. You just need to get off your rear and apply yourself and find a job. Take some initiative. Top stock, top stock. Stop talking strange, or just start talking appropriately. Buy in the system, get a job, and get some self-respect, and that will solve your problem. How come you're not doing that? Authors Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, sociologists, believe the problem and the solution comes out like this in an equation. We are equally created by God. In this country, we all have equal opportunity, but there is an X factor, equal created plus equal opportunity plus the X factor, which white tends to, and the establishment tends to say is initiative. Take some initiative. Will equal then, equal outcome. Everyone will be the same. What is the X factor? Ah, hold on. Here's the way it looks. Emerson and Smith provide this parable, which I find very helpful for understanding why uh, white suburbanites, in particular, relate to the reality of discrimination. So here's here's the parable. It's a little story. Both Mary and Parker were overweight to the point of being unhealthy. Mary and Parker decided it was time to do something drastic, so they responded to an ad. "...for the fat Away program. They drove to a rural area in their state where they were taken to separate areas in a wooded camp, and for six weeks they were locked into these compounds, as they were called. Each compound, Mary's and Parker's, uh, according to the ad, were supposed to have the perfect ingredients to lose weight. Their goal each was decidedly to say, I'm going to lose 40 pounds." What they didn't know is that the less than ethical Fataway organization was really a research laboratory studying the effects of various diets, exercise programs and weight loss expectations. Without a word they placed Mary in a compound designed to help her lose weight, but they placed Parker in a compound designed for Parker to gain weight. In Mary's compound, there were running trails, a swimming pool, state-of-the-art exercise equipment, a basketball court, and a sauna. In her cabin were magazines on proper nutrition, instructional videos on how to lose weight, an abundance of natural, healthy, low-fat, low-calorie foods, and no sweets. Each day, Mary was greeted early by fit and trim people who asked Mary to go for a run with them. They talked about how much they loved being thin, they encouraged her that she can be thin too, and they helped her along the way. In Parker's compound, was only a tiny cabin. No exercise equipment was available whatsoever, but there were plenty of videos of people eating food and movies that showed high-calorie foods that looked so sumptuous, so high-calorie, and so good that it would make a sumo wrestler drool. There were very few, few fruits and vegetables in Parker's cabin. The other people in Parker's uh, place were obese, and they all talked about losing weight But somehow it seemed like they really didn't care to lose weight. After two weeks, Mary and Parker came to the weigh-in, unaware of each other's compound conditions and strategy. Mary had lost 19 pounds. Parter had actually gained two pounds. Mary was irritated at Parker. We paid good money to be here, Parker. How could you waste it? You have to exercise. You have to eat right. Parker tried to make his case but it only made Mary more irritated. Mary told Parker that he needed to try harder. Most weeks, more weeks went by and more weigh-ins and the same trend held true. Mary attacked, "Parker, don't you know why you're here, Parker? This place is designed for you to lose weight. If you can't do it here, where can you do it?" Mary When you get home, Parker, the food's going to be fatty, the exercise is going to be difficult, and exercise is going to be really hard to come by, regardless of what situation you're in. Parker, no way is it easy as you make it out to be, Mary. I think the Fat Away program is treating me unfairly. I'm not even sure I want to lose weight. Mary decided that Parker had an attitude problem. But what Mary failed to see, because she wasn't told, was the vast difference in the environments and the vast structural conditions. The system was against Parker. And Mary's constantly telling Parker that effort alone determined his weight made him extremely frustrated and angry. And he felt defeated from the get-go. Yes, individual effort, initiative is important. But what the real X factor is, is a system that is stacked against you. That's why it's an unequal outcome. The system is set up for some to not get ahead. That's what's really wrong with the equation. There are not equal opportunities. Even though we are created in the sight of God to be the same. So Lakeland, we have to decide, because of that cross, because the banner over us is Jesus, because of love your neighbor, we have to decide what will we do, not just to alleviate our guilt, because I'm not here to guilt you this morning. If you have some guilt, it's okay. It's a healthy guilt. If you have bad guilt, then shame on me. What do we do? to bring it down to a private, individual response? The answer is easy, but hard to habituate and put into life. It's simply this, as everything is in life, by the way. Do you have some friends of different color in your life? Do you have significant relationships in your life of somebody of a different ethnicity, this is, what, this is how we go after racism. What Emerson and Smith found is that people changed, not because of some preacher up there with fancy charts and doing some, what I'm doing right now. What really changed people was actually having friends and relationships. When Emerson and Smith asked people how do you understand that blacks are being discriminated against? They said, because I have a relative who is African-American. Because I have a friend, I have a coworker, and I've heard their stories. They stopped saying, hey, they just need to take more initiative and take advantage of what's, what's out there. They began to understand that the real X factor is a whole system set up. What if you were in the inner city and you'd never, ever seen an alarm clock? You had no idea that you were supposed to get up at 6 in the morning and go to work because you'd never seen it before. What if you'd never seen anyone married like I saw years ago down at the Hope Center down at Linwood? Not one student had ever seen a marriage, particularly a Christian marriage. Children shuffled around every four to six months from auntie's house to grandma's house back there. No stability. No mail was around because they felt bad because they didn't have a job. They couldn't provide for their kids and family. Why would they want stick, to stick around and feel shamed? Our job then because of that cross and the resurrection of Jesus is to begin to live out heaven here on earth now because folks i'm going to tell you i'm going to tell you that when you get to heaven it's going to look different okay (laughs) you know have you thought about the numbers on this whole thing have you run the numbers on heaven yeah Are are you thinking this through with me right because as Revelation says, the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter nine, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 says, There is a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, all tribes and people and language standing before the throne of God. Long before any talk of diversity and multiculturalism and blah, 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 you see a countless ocean of faces in heaven standing before the throne of God at the banquet table of Jesus with the, 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 the chalice raised. White, brown, dark brown, cinnamon, light brown, reddish brown, mixed white brown, people of all different races. Heaven is some version of brown, folks. You're just one color added in to the swirly. So we might want to start living like that now. This is not, I've been preaching this since the beginning of the church, by the way. This is not anything political. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I just lifted it from last time I did it. Before any of the present stuff that we're all dealing with was ever around. You old timers know what I'm talking about. In a moment, you're going to come and take the Lord's table, communion, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper. In this church, from the beginning, we've tried to use one loaf and one chalice. None of that little glass thing where everybody stays in their seats. Like, I don't get it. I grew up with that. I didn't get it then. I said, we're doing it different. You're going to get out of your seat. You're going to come forward to the cup of Jesus. It is a cup of unity. It's a cup of hope. Not that you've already done it. It's a reminder that says, this cup, this loaf. Servers could come forward, by the way. This cup, this loaf. This is the moment where we say, ah, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is who I'm supposed to be. I am being re-challenged at this moment for one more week until I'm back here again. Who I'm supposed to be. Every week, that one cup, that one loaf is supposed to say, you're one. You're all one people. You're going to have to lay all that other stuff aside. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. This is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is a remembrance The nuance of remembrance is not way back when, 2,000 years ago. Remembrance means remember now. It's right now. Remember that Jesus is present now. That you're going to walk out with Jesus into the world. Back to work, back to school, back to your jobs, back to your hobbies, back to your neighborhood. Jesus is with you. That's what we're proclaiming. Now, if you're not into that, then stay seated. It's Lakeland. It's Fine, you can stay in your seat. We have people do that all the time. But that's what the rest of us here are all about. That's what we're doing. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray, thinking particularly about that first line about heaven here on earth, thereabouts. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Christ our Passover sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to you as this food and drink. Come whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip in the chalice. Eat it and return to your seat in prayer. Let's get out of here with the Celtic blessing. So open your hands up like God's going to rain down on you. Yeah. And join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he's shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go in peace.